You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Technos Podcast, the PropTech Podcast. And I've got a really fun show for you here today. We're interviewing the CEO and co-founder of Spark Real Estate Software, Simeon Garrett. Uh, you can learn more about Spark, spark.re. I love the domain. I love the name in of itself. They're working with real estate developers, specifically those who are building and selling condos in about 80 different cities all across North America in transforming and digitalizing their sales and marketing process, taking it from an all paper world, something that you know is outdated or slow and really more than anything doesn't capture the data of prospective buyers and customers. Uh, and they're delivering this in a software as a service package to those real estate developers. And we go into a quite a bit uh, different topics. I asked Simeon to give his prediction of when he thinks that real estate developers, or at least 90% of them, will go paperless. And his answer might surprise you as someone working to digitally transform the industry. Uh, he has a very unique background and backstory. I think you'll want to listen into this one. So kick back, enjoy. Hey, Simeon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, to have you here. Uh, and for our conversation, I think we ought to get things started correctly. Why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Simeon Garrett. Um, I was born in Toronto. I was raised in, in Asia and I'm the CEO and founder of Spark Real Estate Software. All right. I love the name Spark, by the way. It, it, it has so many visual potentials. You can go so many angles with that. If you ever, if you ever decided to pivot and go like into utilities, it works. <laughs> if you went into like futurism, it works. I think in Web three, it could totally work. But uh, I don't think you're doing any of those. So why don't you? Um, maybe we can get into that. What is the, the, you know, the big problem, if you will, that Spark is working to solve? Yeah, so we're we're essentially built a platform that bridges the gap between real estate and technology. And and when I'm talking about real estate specifically, we're talking about the new development space. So condos, high rise, high density, basically builders and condo developers were essentially a back end infrastructure for sales, marketing, and management of their new development projects. Um, so we live kind of behind the scenes, um, but we're what the staff would use, you know, the sales coordinators, the marketing directors, even sometimes the CEOs or the CFOs to manage the process of conception to completion of a new development project in the residential space. It sounds like it's really easy. How did you, just, <laughs> how did you, how did you find yourself into this niche, right? Because this is the challenge that I think happens all across prop tech, right? You, you come from a tech background, you come from a real estate background. What's your story? Yeah. I mean, so I, I actually got really, really lucky growing up. I think, you know, my, my parents lived in, in Asia for more than 30 years. I, as a kid grew up in China and Malaysia, and I grew up speaking fluent Mandarin and Cantonese. Um, I moved to Vancouver in 2010, which happened to be the height of the Asian real estate migration from Asia to Vancouver. And I landed in Vancouver and essentially got into real estate because I was a white guy that spoke Mandarin. 
Um, that led me very quickly into helping real estate developers in Canada f- travel between or take product from uh, North America to Asia. So, you know, once every five weeks for a couple of years, I was essentially getting on a plane, taking a new development project and flying to Shanghai, Beijing, um, Singapore, Malaysia, you name it, um, and setting up shop in hotel rooms or different conference centers and essentially pre-selling new development units or residential condos in Asia. Um, and that's really what exposed me to the background of what happens behind the scenes when you're trying to sell a $300 million tower or pre-sell a tower. Um, and through that, obviously, was a lot of frustrations. You know, it's Excel, it's it's PDFs, it's it's random bits of information, especially when you're selling between, you know, two different continents. Um, and that was really what, where I had that moment of, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, as cheesy as it sounds, it was, you know, it, it, there's got to be a better way than Excel. And I'm sure that applies to a lot of industries. But that was really how I got into it. I kind of landed in it um, just, you know, by the fact that I, you know, spoke a different language, essentially. That's it is a really remarkable way of finding yourself into the seat of being a you know prop tech founder and and starting a company here, um and 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 talk about the complexity there. I, I think that that kind of gets lost. Like, what are some of like the specific challenges in there? Right, you're trying to pre-sell a, a building off of spreadsheets and uh, PDFs. You know, what are some of the things that are just most tedious or get confused the most just because of that process? I mean, a lot of it, there, there's kind of a couple different answers to that question. I think that the big, the big change initially was taking things and making them digital. So taking a paper contract, turning that digital, you know, taking a, a, uh, a registration card when somebody walks into a sales center that you would fill out manually and making that digital. So that was the initial, you know, thing that we were trying to solve was, you know, get rid of the paper, get people online. That's the way things were going. Um, the challenge that we had is we were trying to address all of these problems at the very same time and build a platform that essentially was a lot bigger than we had anticipated. And so, and we also started doing it at a time that was a bit early for the PropTech space. I mean, we started doing this in 2012, which is, you know, now you see PropTech being, you know, a huge forerunner in, you know, raising capital and driving a lot of those markets. But back then, nobody even cared. Um, and if anything, nobody even had budget line items for software or technology in, you know, a new development PL. Nobody thought about that. So that was kind of the initial challenges that we were trying to solve when we when we started. I don't know that prop tech was a word in 2012, was it? Was that was that yet coined? I don't think I never I never <laughs> I never heard about it. Um, I, I think it was a, a bit of a weird one. But now, you know, now it's 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 everywhere and you know it's even hard for us to sometimes call ourselves prop tech because we kind of started a little bit before that whole craze, but you know, it's kind of what we've been grouped into now. Yeah, yeah. I mean obviously there's a lot of I, I ran a Twitter poll recently of uh should it be prop tech, you know, just all the way through, or should it be prop tech camel cased? With with the P and the and the T capitalized, huh. uh, I, I yeah. won't put you on the spot unless you want to put out an opinion. I know where I stand on this. I I, I mean I think that it I think it kind of depends which which part of the market you're in, but I mean I definitely think there's the case for both. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all good. We, we won't discriminate. So so which as what type of asset classes does Spark primarily work with or is best suited for? So we we specifically operate in the in the new development pre-sale condos so it's all it's primarily all residential you know as a byproduct of that sometimes we do have some commercial you know podiums of buildings that we're selling that do get grouped into i guess the the, the platform just because it's part of the building but we're our focus really is you know low-rise mid-rise high-rise new development condos essentially got it so so this is this is not a not for leasing not for tenant management this is really a matter of like building out and demonstrating what the the whole building's going to look like and then helping that 
that building sales team have something that's going to be able to sell the condos? Yeah. So essentially what we're doing is, you know, if you're, if you ever bought a pre-sale or you're going to go buy uh, a property that's not built yet from a developer, you're going to go to the website, you're going to register your information. That is where we start. So that information goes into our system. So every interaction that you have between yourself and the salesperson or the developer, that's all coming through us. Every email, all the phone calls, all the communication, all the notes, what you're interested in. And then as you move through the buying process of, you know, you're interested in a specific unit, you then get attached to that. If you're going to buy, we generate the contracts, we manage the actual execution digitally, um, you know, your deposits, all the commissions, all the way through till that building closes. That information is basically being run and managed inside of our platform. Got it. Okay. And, and I imagine, you know, you talk about like 2012 being early. Obviously, a lot of people have caught up. But when you maybe work with a new developer who hasn't yet gone a route like this and they maybe have a traditional sales uh, type team and, and process, right? I'm imagining a job trailer parked outside with the construction people and it's it's got a vinyl banner over it that says sales office as the building is going up, right? They're trying to pre-sell yeah. units with paper maps up on the wall, you know, or paper pictures of, of, of the the units what are some of the the hurdles that you encounter when you're talking with these developers of you know taking their old process and rethinking that and totally digitizing that process yeah i mean there's 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 the technical answer which is obviously you know the, the hurdle is that it's been very hard for us to you know especially in the early days was to create space and a budget for a software like ours you know obviously we're not extremely cheap um, but we do add a lot of value. But the problem is that a lot of people didn't have room in their budgets. You know, they're used to spending money on banner ads. They're used to spending money on huge events for realtors, um, you know, big prizes, giveaways, et cetera. But the actual digital budget was usually very, very low. And so that was the, that's one of the other big hurdles or one of the initial big hurdles that we had to cross. Um, and I think the secondary hurdle really is that, you know, the real estate market has been on fire for so long. And when things are good, you know, it's if it ain't broke don't fix it type of mentality. And so going into these developers that, hey, I'm selling out my 100 unit building anyways, why do I need to go and do this brand new thing? Or why would I try this brand new thing? And so it's more of an education of, okay, well, yes, you are doing that, but there is a better way. And you could actually potentially make more money or sell faster or get more information around what you're already doing. And that is really the education process that comes into that whole um, that whole idea. It's, it's so fascinating that you say that. We, I, I talk about this all the time, uh, especially in, in the rental industry uh, related to my day job, right? And uh, I mean, demand is so high. Why, why would you change patterns what you're doing right now? Uh, but it's kind of like, I like to think of it like a savings account, right? You don't make deposits when you need to write a check. You need to make deposits yeah. on an ongoing basis. And, and as you talked about, like improving process and even improving service is what you give to the customer before you need it. Uh, in the end, you know, it can yield really great results. You brought up a, a little point of like talking about being used to running banner ads and having marketing budgets. Obviously, you're at the forefront seeing some of the, the trends in how people are selling new developments. Is it as easy as putting a, a stake in the ground saying new units coming soon? Or are you seeing uh, certain marketing trends as far as how developers are working to, to sell their units? I mean, I think it really, it really depends. I mean, so, so for us, I mean, it's geographically specific for sure. Um, I mean, we, we currently work in about 80 different cities in North America. So we get a pretty good view of what's, you know, what's working in New York, what's working in Miami, what's working in Toronto, et cetera. Um, in a lot of places, it is just that easy. It's you put a stick in the ground, you put a sign up saying register here for new units and you have a thousand registrations immediately. 
Um, you know, but then you also have the tier two, tier three cities more in the Midwest that are that are up and coming that, you know, it, it is actually a really, it's a grind. You've got to sell, you've got to manage relationships and you have to use those tools and use every tool you have in order to make those sales because the competition is high. So it, it's, it's a really broad, it's a broad spectrum and we see, we see all of it and the value that we add is different in each of those markets for sure. What are some of the metrics that real estate developers have found most valuable in being able to track and monitor to understand the health and uh, of, of their sales process and, mm -hmm. and making some improvements to their sales process? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's 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 kind of a weird a weird thing to say, but a lot of them actually have almost none. Huh. Um, it's a very very sparse industry. You know, as we, you look at uh, you know, we were working with a bunch of big groups in Toronto recently, and it you know as, as early as three or four years ago, you know, people didn't even have a record of the database of people that had registered for their projects. Um, because they just didn't keep them. You know, once your building was sold out, they'd, they'd let the, the database go. And, you know, it's, it sounds very strange, but, you know, that market is very broker-driven. So the brokers bring all the buyers. So all the developers do is take care of the brokers, but they don't actually own a lot of the data. And so what we've tried to do is shift that mentality to say, you know, one day you're going to need this data, and one day you might not have the brokers. And what happens when the market turns down and the brokers go somewhere else? Then then what do you do? Um, and so I think that's that's the mentality shift that we're trying to, inject into these developers that you can own this data. The data is actually very important and you've already spent the money to get it. So why not use it to its maximum? Oh, that, that so many pieces in there. So, so a, a, a lot of these buildings then whether they have an internal team or not, they, they just don't, maybe don't know like how many people came to an open house or, or visiting online or looked at the 3d maps and all those things that, that you're saying right now, currently for many developers that goes into a black hole, whereas you guys are able to unlock a lot of that data. And so then, the next project, they would have like a baseline to, to go back and revisit and know exactly what they should expect. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't say, you know, I don't want to generalize and say all developers are doing that. There's definitely some very advanced developers out there that we work with that have access to a lot of data. Um, the challenge that, you know, we actually solve in a lot of ways is that most of this data lives in, in a multitude of platforms. So it might live, you know, the sales data lives in one side, the inventory data lives in another side, the marketing data is in a totally different platform, and your emails are sent from something like MailChimp. Um, none of those platforms talk to each other. So when you're trying to pull good reporting and good data out of the system, you then have to do a ton of manual work to say, okay, well, was this associated with this? Did this marketing campaign actually work? How much money did we spend on it? Which buyers came from where? And that's something where, you know, when we put everything into the same platform, it's really easy for us to associate that data and make it make sense, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then on that piece, you, you mentioned uh, MailChimp, the, the darling of bootstrap companies. Uh, yeah. but, uh, uh, what, what are some of the other platforms that, um, and, or, and, or do you guys integrate with other platforms that, you know, can tie into a tech stack already in existence? Totally. I mean, we integrate, you know, we, we have a ton of integrations. I mean, Zapier is our best friend. We use Zapier to integrate to different marketing channels, to other ERP. So big backend ERP systems, even groups like Salesforce, we would integrate with. Um, we do have third-party integrations with other mail apps, um, there's, you know, text message marketing, all sorts of different pieces, or even the integrations to the 3D renderings or um, the physical sales center displays. You know, we're powering the data behind a lot of those displays, what's available, what's not, all the online selling tools, or even taking data and sending it to the MLSs so that they have public listings for some of these buildings. Um, a ton of integrations are really coming from the core data set that we're, that we're building. I love it. What, what are some of the things, you know, one of the things I, I took note of is I, I saw that, uh, you know, Spark being described as one of the fastest growing, you know, technology platforms in, in this space. 
what has been driving that growth? I mean, and and I want to preface with like, I hear when you talk about this product, I hear a ton of uphill friction. I hear a very challenging market. It's not as easy as, right, put out a Google ad and a landing page and we see a sale come through. There's probably a fair amount right. of education, handholding, and then even onboarding. So what's been driving the growth and success that you guys have been seeing? I mean, we we have some amazing, amazing clients and, you know, 30% of our new clients come by referral. So we're getting referrals from clients that we already have. And that's how we've actually gotten into a lot of large markets. You know, in New York, we signed a large client. That client referred us to some other clients and they referred us to some other clients. Um, you know, of course, we also have a sales team that's on the ground that cold calls. It's very, very specific. It's hard to actually advertise digitally for what we're doing because not a lot of people are going online and searching for, you know, new development, real estate, CRM, transaction software, right? It's not a search term that really comes up. So how do we find those people? It's really, you know, we nurture the relationships that we have. And also it's a very incestuous industry. You know, people from one company jump to another company that happens all the time. So we get brought into a lot of deals um, because people jump ship. Um, and so that, and, and that's really led us into, you know, some of the brokerages and then the brokerages, if, you, if you're successful with one brokerage that's selling you development, they'll bring you into their other there are other offices, so maybe an office in a different city or maybe even another office in the same city. Um, and then they start to talk and things like that. So I think, I mean, our success really has come from, we've been investing in the brand and this industry for a long, long time and almost longer than most other groups, you know, in the space. And so I think COVID actually was a huge accelerator for us because all of a sudden it became, you know, not a nice to have, to have something digital. It was a, it was a necessity. And so that kind of like, oh yeah, I do remember having that conversation about that company named Spark, you know, easy name to remember. All of a sudden we get a call or all of a sudden we reach back out and the timing is good because everyone now has to be, you know, digital. Everyone has, everything has to be through Zoom. Nothing can be in person. So that really was a, was a, you know, an interesting point for us, you know, starting in 2020 where all these old leads and all these old clients that we've been nurturing for a long time, all of a sudden came, came back to us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and. I, I, I hesitate to hinge on what COVID has done and did and all that. Um, but at the same time, we can't avoid it. It definitely accelerated transformation for a lot of businesses. And, and you hit the nail on the head, the need to have uh, tours and layouts and, you know, visibility, not just to a sample unit, but to each individual or specific unit is, is ultimately there. The buyer's asking for it and COVID left a lot of people no option, but to finally take the plunge. And at the same time, the market got more insane. So not only did, did COVID you know, make this a requirement, the market got busier and people started buying more. So it actually was, a, you know, it was kind of a double effect on that where you, know, you needed it and now you needed it even more because it's even busier than you were before COVID. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll save the conversation for speed to the deal. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a trend I've been following yeah. very closely. Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of different items and, and pathways to go on that one. I love to talk through this one. I, and this is one of my favorite questions for founders, especially, you know, you guys have been doing this now for quite a few years. I'm sure you've had one or two ideas that you thought were going to be slam dunks that uh, didn't quite work out. Can you share uh, a story or an example of any of those and, and what you guys learned from those experiments knock on exactly the way you thought they would? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had a bunch, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a trial and error industry in the early days because you're trying to figure out what people want and you're also, you're asking people, but you're also trying to, trying to guess what's gonna be coming next. Um, I mean, in the early days, we, we really thought that people were going to be super invested in wanting to know the ROI of every single dollar spent on the marketing side. 
Um, and we built a tool out, you know, our, our marketing spend tracking. It turns out, you know, we, we spent a lot of time research kind of building this thing. And a lot of people actually never, never used it. We thought it was going to be a huge beachhead into, you know, us getting a ton of clients and a lot of ton of traction. But it turned out that, that we were a bit too early for people to care about that, which, you know, even now it's still something that if the sales are happening, it doesn't really matter. The budget's the budget. And we're not as concerned unless we can do it to the nth degree. We can go all the way to, you know, the, the huge, you know, SAP level customization of, of big enterprise. Um, then we're not then we're not that interested because it's it's the sales coordinator. It's the marketing coordinator that are doing that job. At the end of the day, it's, it's on them. So they just got to figure it out. Um, and I think that was probably one thing that, you know, was a big aha moment of like, hey, you know what? We <laughs> maybe we don't know exactly what people want. And also that changed from market to market as we started to bring on groups in different cities. You know, what we thought was going to be really popular or a huge feature suite in one city was completely disregarded in another city. You know, another one was, you know, we went into New York, you know, a number of years now. Um, thinking that, you know, the access to data was really, really key. You know, everybody having shared data pool, being able to work collaboratively together. And New York basically said, we don't want that at all. In fact, we actually want the opposite. We want restrictions. I don't want any other agent to see any of my deals, any of my information, any of the things that I'm working on, because that's my, that's my stuff. Um, and so then we had to go and rework our entire permission system to say, okay, well, actually, now we're going to block everything out so that these guys can do their job properly because it's so competitive. So there's been a couple examples like that along the way. And again, you know, this is this is geographically specific for sure. Um, but those were some pretty big examples, I think, that that came about, you know, just from us thinking that, hey, this makes a lot of sense, even though the industry didn't necessarily want it. Yeah. New York is such a fascinating place. How many MLSs do they have in New York City? Is it, It's absurd. I, I I mean, they, they kind of don't really have one. <laughs> they have all tons, it's all private MLSs, right? They don't have a, they don't have a singular MLS that runs everything. It's a very strange, n nothing else functions like it did in New York. And that was another thing we did. You know, we doubled down on a lot of things in New York in the early days because we had so many large clients there and those things didn't translate to any other market because it's only the way it happens there. Um, and so that also took a bunch of reworking into, you know, how do we get into Miami? What about Dallas? What about Chicago? And those, they were almost like the polar opposite in a lot of ways of how the actual data transfer had to work there. I love it. Yeah. We'll talk about some unique challenges there and uh, building to what your customers today want. That's, I mean, that's the classic crossing the chasm, you know, as you have your big customers in one market and try to cross over to and expand into other markets and see that, you know, it doesn't necessarily translate one for one. Want to shift gears here a little bit? One of the topics that's come up a lot in PropTech is finding, hiring, and retaining top talent, especially engineers. You guys, as a software company, I mean that that's that's you need that. Engineers is the bread and butter. What have you guys done that's helped you to be successful in this area? And specifically, I think this is really important, especially for all the founders listening. PropTech is not over the years and maybe it's going to change with the headlines of how much money is being raised but hasn't always attracted talent seeking yeah. you know they want to be at a prop tech company so what, what have you guys done that has really worked over the years i mean i think it's there there's there's a two different sides i think to that one is that you know from day one I and mean, we we have we have people engineers that are still with us from day one you know some of the founding partners of of, of spark are still with us from day one um part of that is ownership Right, you got to give people ownership. You got to let people be invested in what you're doing, and they also have to believe in it. So, you know, they have to understand the market. They have to understand the industry. A lot of times, there's a disconnect between what people are building um, and what they are passionate about, what they're what they understand. And so, you know, the people, a lot of the guys that work for us or, or girls or you know everybody really, you know, we care about 
the real estate market. We're interested in the real estate market. We spend a lot of time making sure people understand what we're about. And that even happens in the early stages of our hiring. Um, you know, of course, it, it's definitely gotten very, very competitive over the last 18 months. And it's been, you know, it's been really tough to find good people. And we have had people that have been good, but they weren't necessarily the right culture fit too. So we got to, you know, you don't want to hire somebody. And if you hire somebody for money, they're going to leave for money. That always, that's the, the standard scenario. And so you never want to just increase the salaries. It's got to be the right person and the right fit. And you figure out the incentives and what those people care about. Um, and we also, we also spend a lot of time on culture. I mean, we spend a lot of time caring about our people. We do a lot of company things. We have a lot of, you know, tight relationships that we've built around the company and we invest a lot of money and time in that. And, you know, even over COVID, we did a lot of different, you know, activities and, and stuff to tie people in. Um, but at the same time, making it, you know, making sure that we understand that not everybody wants to do those things. So it's not a culture of drink the Kool-Aid. You know, you're allowed to have people that don't care about coming to an event, but you also have people that really care about coming to the event. So you got to be able to balance both of those. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's what we've tried to do is keep a pretty even keel over the years and just, you know, keep a pulse on what people actually want. Um, not what we think that they want or not what the industry is doing, but you know, why do people care about spark and why do we care about the people that work here? Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in there, especially on the hiring of a piece about money. Uh, kind of switching gears a little bit here, but related to money. Uh, yeah, PropTech making a ton of headlines on the amount of money coming into the space. So kind of a twofold. You know, if you could share a little bit about the the stage that you guys are at, uh, and if you guys have gone through that raising process, um, and then as well uh, the as the add-on, why do you think so much money? Uh, is turning its attention and pouring into uh, the prop tech scene. Yeah, um, I mean, so we've we we kind of non traditionally raised money in the very beginning. We didn't actually raise money for quite a long time. Um, you know, we were very very you know we are five guys in my apartment for two years at the beginning, and then we moved into a very small co working space. We ended up getting a, a loan from the government of Canada that had a long repayment term that allowed us to hire our first employees. Um, and then we kind of, you know, then we kind of went and just built and, you know, we're very, very small. We didn't have a lot of clients, but we just kind of kept at it. Um, slowly over time, you know, we raised little bits of money here and there from, you know, different brokers, high net worth individuals. We never did the classical, you know, do your angel round and then do your, you know, do your seed round and do, you know, we, we kind of skipped a lot of that by a thinking that maybe we'd go public. Maybe we do some other sort of interesting financial maneuvers in the early days, which never worked out. Um, and then just as of, as of this last July, you know, we actually closed our, our, what we call our series A. Um, and that was backed by BDC, which again was the group that gave us our very first ever loan, which is again, business development bank of Canada. And then another large fund in Canada, um, called Pender fund. Um, and so that was, that was about just over almost six and a half million dollars in the series A. Um, and if we combine everything that we've raised, you know, historically, we'd be just about $10 million. Not good on you guys. Uh, it sounds like you're taking a really diligent, intentional approach about it versus just score the check in the headline and <laughs> call it a day. Um, well, I, I, I think a lot of it, uh, sorry, just to touch on that a little bit. I think a lot of it was that I didn't, when we started Spark, when I started Spark, I didn't, I didn't know what it VC was. I didn't know what an angel investor was. I didn't know what seed money was. Um, you know, I, I came from the business world. I grew up in China. I had no idea that that world even existed. And so it was never part of my strategy or our strategy to do that. Um, it kind of happened over time when you start to see, oh, these guys raise money, these guys raise money. Then you start thinking, oh, maybe that would be nice to have a little bit more cash in the bank to be able to hire and not have to figure out how to, you know, pay the next rent type of thing. Um, 
but then, you know, when we're, you know, your second question, I think, which was touching on the actual, you know, why is so much money flowing into real estate? Um, again, I mean, there's two answers. One real estate is, is sort of the last behemoth that has never shifted into the digital world, right? It's been this, this long, you know, market of, you know, broken MLSs and, and a lot of things, you know, barriers to entry, you know, that also is coincides with the market being really hot. Um, and I think on the flip side of that, a lot of these big VCs now are actually backed by huge real estate firms. Money's coming from real estate firms, which is why there's a lot of money going into real estate. Um, you know, the real estate market has made so much money. You know, it's the largest asset class in the world. The guys that have all the cash are now putting their money back into tech because the tech gets evaluations. But what they understand is real estate. So I think a lot of that is flowing actually from these huge GPLP partnerships, these PE funds that are real estate asset backed that they, they can now invest money in something they understand versus it going into, you know, the world of AI or the, you know, whatever a consumer good type thing that they don't really, you know, they don't have any association to and they're just hoping that somebody else does. They say, hey, if I invest some money in, in a, you know, in, a, in the prop tech world, I can probably also use it and I can value add my own investment. So that's a, that's a lot of what I've seen. Yeah, uh, which is a pretty smart uh, idea, way to, to approach it. I got one thing that's really more a uh, question for you personally. Uh, so that uh, you were you were nominated president of BC Real Estate Tech Association. That's true. What does that uh, what's that mean? Uh, what does that organization do first, and uh, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so the that organization is, is very very new actually. So the the guys that that are behind that were actually the ones that started the the largest AR VR association in the world so that was really kind of where it came from and there was a spin-off of that a bunch of guys the arv or applications were getting closer and closer to the real estate market and they reached out to me because i knew one of the guys who was on the board of the arvr association and he said hey we're thinking about doing a real estate piece and we're going to be you know spooling up essentially the same type of network that we did in the air or the vr world um and would you be interested in kind of leading or a being part of it and b you know being in Vancouver, would you be interested in being part of the West Coast chapter? No, I said, of course, like, a, you know, associations, I'd love, I'd love to get, you know, in touch with more people in the industry and in the market, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, it just kind of fell into place of them saying, hey, well, maybe you'd be a good fit to actually run it. And so it's been a bit, it's been a bit tough with COVID because a lot of it revolves around doing actual events and bringing people together and having sort of get togethers of people that are like-minded in the space. Um, but really the goal is just to get people in the real estate prop tech or those auxiliary markets for it. Um, you know, into a room and, ha and have a conversation once in a while and sort of feed off each other. And that was really what, what the whole thing was about. Very cool. And uh, congrats on that. Sounds like a, quite an honor and an exciting thing to be part of. Thank you. All right. We're getting to the uh, segment of the show. What I like to always say is my favorite. We call this for the future. This is where I get to ask each guest who comes to the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. First one here. What does Spark real estate software look like one year from now? Um, closer to the money. Um, all we're, our, our entire goal is to get closer and closer to the transaction itself. And that's, I think, where the market's going. And that's really, you know, one year from now, our goal is to be, if not in it, right next to the actual transaction of funds. All right. Question number two. What year will it be when 90% of real estate developers go paperless to sell their condos? <laughs> I mean, I would, uh, I, I, I would like, to, I would like to say, you know, sometime in the next ten years. But honestly, I probably think it's going to be never, um, because there's always an application for paper 
as a backup. And as you've seen, you know, the internet goes down, things happen. You always have to have that piece of paper and you're always going to have the people that want to hold something physical. And we see that whether they have a completely digital building, you always want to have a printout. Someone wants to see it. So, you know, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's good to have, you know, you're buying a home. I think it's good to have some sort of physical piece that does represent that at some point. Um, you know, I would say, I think that 90% of the, the transaction work will be digital. I think there's always going to be about 10% of it. That's going to stay in that physical world. Unfortunately, we're all going to have to still recall third grade lessons <laughs> on cursive on how to sign our name. It's never gone away, but, uh, yeah, exactly. Very cool. All right. Number three, what's one industry trend do you think will continue, but you wish would go away? Excel. That is one thing that is a huge, it's, it's the baseline of every single real estate project. And it's the bane of my existence half the time. Um, because it's, why can't you replicate my reports to look exactly like this? Um, or why can't my data look like this or be like this because I use Excel. And I think that that's one thing that as much as we, we hate it, it's, it's, it's not going to go anywhere for a long, long time. And the last one here, what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? I think uh, like a paper check, right? It's everything to do with everything to do with the transaction of money. So the changing hands of money, that is going to be the biggest piece of the market that's going to get impacted by technology. You know, it's not going to have to go get a bank draft and not having to, you know, wait for a confirmation. It's going to be instant. It's going to be on the spot and it's going to be digital. I think that's really going to be the largest thing that technology is going to disrupt. Very cool. If I never have to do another cashier's check, I would be very happy about that. Um, that's <laughs> never my favorite thing. Exactly. You know, it's better than walking yeah. out the bank with a pocket full of cash, uh, but still never very my true. favorite thing. All right. Well, yeah. uh, Simeon, we have three more for you. These are really more about you personally, so our listeners get to know you better. Sure. First one here, what are you reading? Um, I'm actually currently reading a book called The Misfit Economy, um, which is essentially about the abnormal entrepreneurs. It's kind of about, you know, pirates and gangsters and hackers and, and this whole world of like, you know, entrepreneurs that you wouldn't consider entrepreneurs and some of the lessons that, you know, you can learn from them you know whether it's applicable to my life or not i'm not sure yet i only just started it but it's uh it's definitely pretty interesting this is fictional or non-fiction no it's fiction or sorry it's non-fiction it's like a, based on real stories it's it's you know it's groups analyzing how gangsters ran their businesses you know and how pirates you know able were able to monopolize and how they you know had you know ecosystems and information exchange and things like that it's, you know, it's kind of a weird kind of a weird one but it's it's pretty interesting all right uh, I'm adding that one to my Amazon wish list. <laughs> uh, question two: Who are you learning from? I mean, I'm. I think I'm. I'm pretty lucky to have a very good group of friends that are all you know in the entrepreneurial world, and I think that you know there's a big level of trust that you have with those people, and you're able to be really open. And I think that you know, I'm probably learning the most from my friends that are you know running, starting, or you know, managing other companies, um, you know, getting together, being able to be completely open and honest. And I think my most learning has come from people that are, you know, very, very close to me. It's not as much the the books that I'm reading or the, or the, the podcasts or the, you know, the big interviews that I'm watching with, you know, some of these, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs. It, it's really, it's really the people that are really close to me that are doing things. And I've seen go from, you know, being really small to now, you know, building big companies and making big, big moves. All right. And the last one here, what inspires you? 
I mean, you know, to be a little cliche, I mean, winning definitely inspires me. I mean, I, I really like to win. I, I think that that's something that I've always <laughs> wanted to, you know, I, that it, it really gets me excited. Um, but I think also the, the, the second part of that really what inspires me is seeing the people that work for me win also. Um, it's seeing, you know, the people that, you know, have been with Spark for five years, buy a house, have a kid, you know, buy another house, go on a trip, get a, get a cool car. Like that stuff really inspires me to see that that's all part of what we've built. Um, and the more that I see that, the more it makes me want to, you know, work harder. That's awesome. Bonus question. You must love Tom Brady. Is it true? He's a winner. <laughs> I mean, of course. Yeah. It's, he's a little too regimented for me, but I do, I do love his, <laughs> his, uh, his stats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, everyone either loves or hates him. It's so phenomenal, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I like to eat meat. That's the only problem. I'll go on record. I'm a Tom Brady guy. I'm not a Bucks fan, but okay. know, it is what it is. Well, hey, uh, Simi, this yeah. has been a really enjoyable uh, discussion here, and thanks for sharing. This is actually a whole world I didn't really realize. Like, yeah, I know there's sales softwares, and I know there's condos. I just didn't put all this together uh, previously, so there's a lot of um, uh, insights packed in here. Before we close out the show, for people who actually want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about Spark, where are the best places to go, how do they do that? Um, super easy, spark.re, re is in real estate, um, super simple domain. Um, or you can, you know, shoot me an email, Simeon, S-I-M-E-O-N, at spark.re. That's, those are the two best places to find me or us. Good stuff. And uh, maybe one of these days, we got to come back to the speed of the deal. There's a, there's a big debate on this, and I want to uh, kick up some conversations because there's so much more to talk about that. But until then, I'll see you around on the internet. Uh, we'll see you later. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Nate. Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right into your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great worthy listen. We'll see you next week.